people in the world that you think their humanity is broken and and what do you think you do with those people how do you stop them from their destruction now let's move on to habit five seek first to understand then to be understood you see the whole key in habit five is the sequence between these two expressions seek first to understand then to be understood most people literally do the very opposite in fact notice your own tendencies do you want to be understood before you seek to understand how do you stop them from their destruction tendency of most all people is to listen with the intent to reply not with the intent to understand that's the most common tendency in us all in most conversations most interactions the only desire is to be understood why that's part of the need to be loved we talked about to live to love to learn to leave a legacy love truly makes the world go around to feel understood is to feel loved people have a need to be loved however the whole key to human influence is first to be influenced now what does that mean the key to having influence another person is that they feel that they have had influence with you that is that you were open to them to what they were saying and feeling and that you were consequently influenced by them in other words you understood them the key to human influence with our spouses with our children with our work associates in fact with anyone is always first to understand that's the first point i'm trying to make here under habit 5 this is so important because our tendencies run in an absolute opposite direction because everyone lives in their own world it's a subjective world it's a world that has its own meanings in it everyone has their own perceptions of what reality is and people are walking around in these subjective worlds and then they collide with each other and when they have to interact with each other they usually interact efficiently within their own world but if they're trying to bring the worlds together to create a better world or to come up with a new agreement new arrangement of necessity both worlds come together and unless we seek to understand the other person's world we will not have influence with that other person nor they with us let me use a couple of physical illustrations to illustrate could you possibly prescribe glasses for eyes you haven't diagnosed no if you're wearing glasses it's because the optometrist first sought to understand and then build the prescription on that understanding another illustration if you were to take the air out of the room you're in or the car you're in right now what would happen to your interest in listening to this audio teaching program all of a sudden you have this great sucking sound and there's no air what would you do it wouldn't make any difference how interesting or how fascinating this program happened to be to you You would want air. You'd do whatever you could do to get air. But now you get it. Now that you have air, does air motivate you? No. Your interest shifts to learning. Why? A satisfied need no longer motivates. You know what the equivalent is emotionally to air? It's to feel understood. They are then open 
to understand you. They're open to be influenced. But until they feel understood, nothing else you do will work with them. Because inside they'll always say, he or she does not understand. When you understand another, you've accepted them. That doesn't mean you agree with them, but that you accept they are people of worth, people worth listening to. You value them, or you wouldn't have spent such time understanding them. You also accept that they see their world differently. You accept that they live in their own world and that it has legitimacy. They occupy space. They are part of the human race. See, essentially, that's air. The most basic elemental foundation of it is that you matter to me. I accept you. Why? I understand you. Why would I want to understand you if you didn't matter, if you didn't have legitimacy? You see, to love another person is to affirm them emotionally, physically, to shake their hand, to empathize with them in some way. They need to be fed this air, this human touch, this warmth this deep communication, and it can come in many, many ways. The problem is that most of us tend to get into a very efficient state of mind. We have our own schedule. We know the kinds of things we want to accomplish. We think it through in our mind. We're under a lot of pressure. There are all kinds of things on our platter, and it's tough. And that's the way modern life is. It's a rushing, fast-moving world. It's changing. It's chaotic. It's turbulent. Well, what do we do to handle that? You have to kind of figure it out. You have to try to be efficient, schedule yourself, and then carry out your schedule. But see, the problem is that when you get into an efficient state of mind, you also try to be efficient in your listening as well. And you don't really take time to listen to understand, to listen empathically, meaning to listen within the other's frame of reference. Shakespeare showed this awareness in his Henry IV, where he said, it is the disease of not listening that I am troubled with all. In our own day of super sophisticated instantaneous global communication, email, the internet, far too often we suffer from this disease of not listening, particularly when we listen from within their world, their frame of reference. Carl Rogers made this brilliant observation. He said, to be with another in this way means that for the time being you lay aside your own views and values in order to enter another's world without prejudice. In some sense it means that you lay aside yourself. This can only be done by persons who are secure enough in themselves that they know they will not get lost in the world of the other." Unquote. Now look, if I'm into efficiency, how can I want to really open up to your world? Your world's so different than my world, and I don't know what your world is going to show me. I don't know how open it is. I don't know how many dimensions, how many variables it has. I can't enter your world. I lose my efficiency altogether, and that disturbs and imbalances almost everything else in my life. Thus, I don't want to really be empathic. That's too much risk. I get too involved. I've got too many things going. I must be efficient. So I've learned to adopt certain techniques. I pretend to listen.
But I'm still basically preparing my response. Why? Because I am efficient and I don't want to lose control. I give the impression that I'm listening. I look at you in the eye, I turn my head a little, I smile, I nod, I do other things to lead you to believe I'm listening. But I'm not really. Why? I can't risk it. I'm too vulnerable. Not just emotionally vulnerable because I'm unaware of what might happen and that I might have to change, but I'm also vulnerable in terms of my whole life. I'm not efficient any longer. I'm out of control. I cannot accomplish as much. I think the problem that I have with Habit 5 is probably the same problem all of us do. We are the sum of our experiences. We filter everything that comes in through that cumulative knowledge that all of those experiences that we've had, prior dealings, and we, we typically end up with a lot of preconceived notions about you know, what's being said or why it's being said but we evaluate that from our context, from our frame of reference. So in seeking to understand, consciously I know that I have to separate myself as much as possible from my frame of reference so I can get in their shoes, I can see where they're coming from. The only way I've found to deal with it is just to constantly remind myself that perception is reality. And these people, even if it's not my reality, it's theirs. My mentor, really, for Habit 5 has been my husband. Uh, he is amazing at just listening and understanding. And before he even says a word or makes a suggestion, uh, it's all about understanding where I'm coming from. And that is a skill I'm really trying to learn from him. It's very valuable. I consider myself a really good listener and I, I tend to like focus on what's really going on around me at work a lot because I don't want to miss anything and I want kind of like cohesiveness in the group. But then when I get home I want those same things but it's like I'm just mentally drained from doing it at work a lot of times and so I'm like I do that type of listening where you go you know shake your head like oh yeah yeah. I stick a video in for the kids and, and my husband, we work different shifts so it's really hard because, you know, when I'm ready to talk, then he's tired and he comes home at midnight so it's like to wake me up and get some conversation and in the morning I'm rushing so I know that's a skill I really need to work on is listening to him more. I know for myself, if I were to fault me at the highest point on these habits, it would be on trying to be efficient with people. When you're dealing with another person and they're living out of their own world and they want you involved in their world, it slows down your world. In other words, we really have to get into a whole different frame of mind and attach ourselves to the higher values of what's really important and to ask, is this little time thing, this efficiency need that important? Really, did anyone on their deathbed ever wish they'd spent more time at the office? I'll tell you what they talk about. They talk about what's important, and that's relationships. With people, you can't be efficient. Remember again, fast is slow with people, and slow is fast. 
seek first to understand, then to be understood requires emotional strength. It requires patience, openness, and a desire to understand all highly developed qualities of character. It also takes a lot of time. It really does. It's not just the quality of time, it's quantity. And the one cannot compensate for the other. But in the long run, it saves so much time. My guess is for every hour spent in correct understanding, it saves 10 to 50 to 100 hours in dealing with the problems that came from not understanding. Oh, if people only knew how much time they would save later on, what a beautiful relationship they're losing out on by not taking the time initially to truly seek to understand another. Because in some ways it's very, very hard to catch up later. But it can still be done, and I would not become discouraged. One time I met a dear friend of mine. He was a professor. We had offices by each other in the same building. He was very down, very dejected. We were talking about it. He said it's because his son was so disturbing and so frustrating and so rebellious. And he didn't know what to do because he said it was truly like a cancer in his family. He said he would come in to watch the television with his son, and the boy would stand up, walk out, then come back in, turn the TV off, and walk out. That's the kind of thing that was so exasperating. And, and he says, I've tried my best. I really have, Stephen. I've tried to reach this son, and it's just beyond what I can do. I, I don't know what to do. I said to him, my friend, why don't you come to my class? Because right now, we're going through learning to listen empathically to another person before you attempt to explain yourself. I said, we'll take you through this and you'll discover a whole different way of relating to your boy because my guess is he does not feel understood. He said he would, he wanted to, it was that important to him and he came to the class and he caught the essence of it fast and he told me this. He went to his son within just a few days of attending the class, and he said, son, I need to listen to you. I really don't think I understand you, and I want to. And his son said, you have never understood me, ever. And he stood up and walked out. My friend said to me, Stephen, I could not believe that. I had made such an effort, he had no idea I had involved myself in this class to learn about this, and I really cared enormously, and that's how he treated me. And he walked out, he said, I felt like tackling him at the door and saying, you idiot, do you realize what I've done and what I'm trying to do now? He said, I didn't. And he said, I just feel like, I don't know if there's any hope here. I mean, he isn't responsive at all. And I said to my friend, look, He's testing your sincerity. And what has he found out? You don't really want to understand your boy. You want your boy to cooperate. You want your boy to shape out. He's 
should that whippersnapper. He knows full well what he's doing to our family. He knows how upsetting it is to me, how upsetting it is to everybody else. He knows full well that he shouldn't do that kind of thing. I said, listen, listen to the energy in you. Listen to your anger. Listen to your frustration. Listen to the judgment of this boy. Do you think you can learn some empathic technique on the surface and act with that judgment, those feelings? Well, if he'd only cooperate, I wouldn't have those feelings. If he'd only respond to what I'm trying to do. I said, you don't really want to understand your boy. Come back to the class. You've got to pay a much bigger price inside yourself. You've got to come to deeper grips of what's happening inside you until you reach the point where it makes no difference what his response is. None. You do it because it's right, not because it works. Well, our relationship was very good, and he was open to that kind of teaching. And he said, I will, I'll come back in. He came back into the class, and he took it so seriously and he went to work on it inside his life. Even though it involved more than just a few days or a few weeks, it involved really a lifetime. But he realized, I have to do more than just intellectually understand it. I must do some of this. My friend caught the message. He could see that he was trying to practice the technique at the surface, but not deal with that which would produce the power to practice it consistently regardless of its effect, regardless of the reaction of the other, so that there was utter sincerity. And he talked to me and said, I'm gonna try it again. I said, he'll test your sincerity again. That's all right. I understand what you're saying here. And honestly, Stephen, he could reject every overture I make and that would be all right. I will just keep making them because these are right principles and he's worth it and our family's worth it. He reported back. He said, I cannot describe the experience that I had with my son last night. And you could sense the tenderness of his feelings as he described this scene. He said, I sat down with my boy and I said, I know you feel like I haven't tried to understand you, but I'm trying, and I will continue to try. And again, the boy responded through rejection by saying, you have never understood me, and I don't care. And just as he was walking out of the room, I said to him, we'll all say one thing, son. I'm sorry for the way I embarrassed you in front of your friends the other night. And the son whipped around and responded, You have no idea how much that embarrassed me. And then he teared up. And my friend said to me, Stephen, all the training that you had given, all the encouragement that you had given, did not touch me like the fact that I saw my son tear up. He said, because I knew he cared. And 
honestly. Till that moment, I didn't think he did. And I realized, here is this little, vulnerable boy who cares and who's been hurt. And he said, I responded in kind and said,
one plus one literally equals three or more. Now, if you have one plus one equaling two, that's not synergy. That might be transaction. You go in and you buy gas and you give money. You transact. That's not synergistic. You may have cooperated. That's not synergistic. Synergy is creative cooperation, where one plus one equals three, four, or ten. Negative synergy, as I mentioned, is where there's enough internal contention and adversarialism that it produces less than even what one person can produce on their own, because so much of the energy is wasted going in the wrong direction. In other words, it's counterproductive. Now the traditional paradigm of interaction, particularly when there are differences and disagreements, is to go for compromise. That's literally where most people think we end up realistically. We go for compromise. This would be where one plus one equals one and a half. And most people think that that's where we should go. That's what synergy means. Not so. That's realistic, however, if you're in a low-trust culture. But if you can cultivate the emotional bank account and the trust goes up, you don't need to go for compromise. If you'll pay the price with habits four, five, and six, you'll come up with this dynamic new quality in life and in relationships called synergy. That really is the sum and bonum of all of these other habits. I've enjoyed immensely the work of professors Fisher and Yuri as they talk about two people fighting about a window. One wants the window open and the other wants it closed. One keeps opening it, the other keeps closing it. It eventually becomes an ego battle between them. He opens it, walks out of the room, and the other person closes it. Then the person comes back and opens it again. It appears that there are only two positions, open or closed. Does it seem that way to you? Or perhaps maybe a compromised position, open half the time, or perhaps open half the way. But remember, synergy is not compromise. Compromise is when one plus one equals one and a half. Synergy means that one plus one equals more than two. Now, what other solutions could you come up with? On this window issue, it seems like it's either open or it's closed or compromised. There are many, many other solutions. We do not yet understand the problem. And you won't know what the solutions are until you get into the underlying intent or the purpose of the person. This takes habit five, where you seek first to understand. So one says, what is it that you are after? And the other responds, I like to have the fresh air. That's why I want the window open. That's what my need is. If I don't get fresh air, I almost feel claustrophobic. It means so much to me. What is it you want? The other person says, my problem is that this breeze from the outside blows my working papers about. I can't keep my things organized. And I need to have them in front of me on my desk in order to do my work efficiently. Now, what do they understand? They understand each other's need, each other's purpose, what they're trying to accomplish there, what's important to them. 
Now, once you understand the two things, then you say, now what can we do? Now, this is where habit six, energy, comes in. What can we do that could meet your need and my need? How can we get the fresh air without the draft? Now, think of the options and the alternatives that can come to your mind. Why don't we open the window in this other room? That would give the fresh air. And the other person says, well, I almost have to see it open or I get this claustrophobic feeling. What would you think of this if we were to organize your desk in this way and put it in this place in the room and my desk in this way? Then we'd have the fresh air and you could see it, but the draft wouldn't come over your desk. What would you think of something like that? Now notice the spirit between these two people. It's a synergistic spirit. They're creating alternatives, solutions that can meet both persons' needs. Sense that spirit, it's the spirit of empathy, it's the spirit of win-win, it's the spirit of seeking to understand, it's not defensive, it's not protective, it's not argumentative, they're not accusing each other. You see, this is the spirit of habits four, five, and six. Four is the root, R-O-O-T, five is the root, R-O-U-T-E, and six is the fruit, synergy. It's also enormously bonding in the relationship because they created something together so that no matter what else comes around, they can deal with those difficulties, with those challenges. The key to habit six, synergize, you could almost say is to value differences. It's not something you just tolerate that there are differences or that you just accept that there are differences. It's not something that is legislated through diversity programs to respect differences, but really, deeply, you actually celebrate differences you realize that in the differences lies this very special creative dynamic and that if we can demonstrate this mutual understanding it will unleash this dynamic so that really strength lies in differences as long as there is a common vision and principle-centered value system then those differences become creative and productive However, if there is not a common purpose, a common vision, a common set of principle-centered values, as well as a deep buy-in to that, then diversity, differences, will literally result in chaos and negative synergy. And it will spawn further prejudice and prejudgment. In other words, it becomes fundamentally counterproductive. That's why it requires the integrity of the first three habits. The development of a common purpose, a common sense of meaning, a common sense of mission, and sufficient integrity around those values that were identified, that the security goes within people so they can afford the risks of thinking win-win, of having the patience and the self-control to seek first to understand and to really be open to understanding. Then gradually you see this dynamic magical thing happening of inventing a new spirit, inventing new approaches, third alternatives, and they are exponentially increased because of these differences. So strength literally lies in these differences. These aren't just nice words to value diversity, to value differences. These are moral imperatives. 
for those that really want to solve problems in entirely new ways. In fact, to get new understanding of the nature of the problems themselves. Go for synergy. The moment someone disagrees with you, train yourself to say to them, or within yourself, good, you see it differently. I want to understand, help me understand. You come from an entirely different angle. You're intelligent, you care, I want to understand. You see the spirit of that? But if you're just into independence and into efficiency and self-control and control of others, you won't feel the same good, I'm glad there are differences. You'll end up wanting to tell them what to think, what to feel, what to do, and you'll end up turning people into things. But then that violates the relationship and you don't get synergy. At best, you get compromise. At worst, you get adversarialism and fighting and negative forms of synergy where one plus one equals less than one. Because so much of the energy of both parties is spent on fighting each other rather than dealing directly with the issues. So we're trying to move toward a positive form of synergy that creates new options through this deep understanding and interchange of differences. That's why I value my wife's input so much to my life. She does see things differently and I need her perspective. And I'm glad when she'll tell me it's different than the way I see it. Because the wisdom that comes ultimately through the interaction is so much greater than what either of us had brought to the situation. But again, the key is to have a common vision and a common value system. Then all of the differences become a very powerful advantage, not a disadvantage. This kind of synergistic communication really is very, very taxing to people and requires considerable maturity. And if you have peripheral issues that are secondary, you may not feel like you have that level of energy and commitment to tap into that kind of energy that is needed. In fact, Sandra and I have found a very fast and easy way to deal with these secondary issues. We simply say to each other, where are you? That means to us, on a scale of one to 10, how important is this to you? If she'll say it's a nine and I'll say it's a three, then we do it her way, or vice versa. We make no effort to go towards synergy, toward a third alternative, because we don't have that much time and that much energy to spend in that kind of communication. We both have agreed up front that we'd be totally honest on our appraisal of how important it is. From time to time, we've also done this with our children, so that if we get in a car and we're going somewhere and we don't have time to resolve it synergistically, we might just say, how strong do you feel about it on a scale of 1 to 10? And when people always try to show respect for those who feel the strongest, and when your happiness is tied up into their happiness and fulfillment, that's truly win-win, even though you didn't get your way, because your higher interest is in their happiness. In other words, it's a kind of democracy that shows respect for the strength of feelings, the depth of feeling behind a person's opinions or desire. It's a very efficient way of solving problems rapidly without having to go towards synergistic communication on everything. This idea of synergy may be just words to you till you actually experience it. You could hear this and still tonight get embroiled with your spouse in some kind of a fight or with your kids. 
or have some other negative interaction with someone at work and then immediately seek first to be understood. The most dreaded thing to happen in a marriage or in the family or in an organization is to destroy the ability to communicate synergistically and to solve problems this way. You see, we always see the world not as it is, but as we are. So we must constantly seek to understand, and most of us tend to think we see the world as it is, that we're objective, and that we're looking through our lens of wisdom and experience, but in fact, we're looking through our lens of conditioning, a prior scripture. We referred to that as a paradigm before, a pair of glasses, a frame of reference, out of which we operate. the implicit assumptions that we operate on, or the map. The key to objectivity is to realize we're subjective. It's to be aware. I do not see the world as it is. I see the world as I am. Therefore, if there is a difference, what about it? Someone else sees it differently based upon their experiences. I need their data. So this concept of valuing differences is not just a good idea. It's not just something that brings unity. It's something that creates through cooperative communication processes, whole new options, new alternatives, new solutions, new insights, far better solutions. And this idea of humility and accepting our subjective involvement is not just some nice principle. It is a reality that people see things differently, and we all need access to that. It's through the interaction of the spirit of habit four, think win-win. Habit 5, the spirit of seeking first to understand, then to be understood. And as most people respectfully, empathically communicate with each other back and forth, something new happens. I honestly believe that you can take about any issue you want where there are profound differences and create a third alternative. If people will practice habits 4, 5, and 6, because in those habits lie the capability the final habit, habit seven, sharpen the saw, is the habit of renewal. What are you doing? Well, can't you see I'm sawing down this tree? Oh, I'll bet you're tired. I am. Well, uh, uh, how long have you been doing it? Oh, I don't know, two, three hours? I'll bet you're beat. Boy, I'll say, I've never been so tired. Well, why don't you sharpen the saw? I'm too busy sawing, dum-dum. Have you ever been too busy driving to take time to get gas? The opposite of sharpening the saw is to leave it dull until the blade breaks, until the mind becomes dull. The spirit insensitive, the body flabby, where everything has gone to pot, literally and figuratively. To sharpen the saw is basically to say, I'm going to keep renewing myself and keeping my entire life in balance. This concept of sharpening the saw applies to four levels. Personally, interpersonally, managerially, organizationally. It's fundamentally the concept of continuous improvement, continuous learning, forever getting better. Habit seven, in a sense, is the habit that focuses on production capability. Habit seven, if done right, automatically renews and develops the other six habits. 
because it takes a high level of proactivity and of responsibility and initiative to consistently sharpen the saw. I do not know of one activity that has as great a leverage factor in life as Habit 7. Look on it this way. Habit 7 moves the fulcrum over. You may only spend a few hours in an entire week, which is made up of 168 hours. But those few hours will affect the quality, the productivity, the satisfaction, the quality of relationships, the quality of decision making of every other hour. That's like moving the fulcrum over. But here's the problem. Habit seven lies in quadrant two. It's important, however, it's not urgent. That's why most people neglect it. In fact, all of the habits lie in quadrant two. They're all terribly important, but not urgent. And habit seven, which in a sense, enables all the other six habits to be constantly renewed, obviously, is important but not urgent. It does not act upon us. We must act upon it. Otherwise, if we neglect this, our lives become disordered. We do things unsystematically. We hit and miss. And then we end up with imbalanced lives and imbalanced organizations that focus myopically only on one dimension. Basically, there are four dimensions in life. The body, the mind, the spirit, and our relationships, that is, the social-emotional side. The same thing applies to organizations. There are the same four dimensions. It has its physical, or what we might call its economic side, to produce the bottom line towards some mission within a certain value system, that is, the spiritual side. It must also have its culture of high trust. That's the social side. In order to have empowerment in the development and use of people's talents, that's the mental side. So those are the same four dimensions. In fact, if you study all of history, philosophy, religion, and psychology, inevitably, you'll find the same dimensions constantly mentioned. The physical, mental, spiritual, and social-emotional, but all four needs need to be attended to, to be renewed and nurtured in a consistent and regular and balanced way in order to properly sharpen the saw. around good nutrition and enough sleep and scheduling time for that. So just in this activity that for me starts out being physical, sharpening the soil, a whole lot more things have grown from it. And so it can be incredibly rewarding. And if I didn't have it, if I didn't do that, I would not be good in the other things. Part of my renewal process, part of sharpening the saw for me is attending college. I'm currently working on another degree, and after I finish this one, I'll probably start another one. I'm a lifelong learner. It's how I invest in myself. 
So when I'm feeling stressed, for me a textbook can be very relaxing. It's uh, therapy. These are the ways that I sharpen the saw. I start the morning by doing some kind of meditation and then read something that is inspirational for me that I hope will carry over in the day. But the things that interest me right now are inspirational, spiritual things and personal growth. Let's look at each one in turn. Under physical, we usually think about these elements of renewal. Exercise, nutrition, and stress management so that we're not crippled and paralyzed from being overstressed, overtaxed, worn out, burned out. Regarding exercise, there is more and more consciousness throughout all society about the importance of it and the effect it has upon our body, upon our sense of well-being, our fitness. But you know the main benefit isn't necessarily physical fitness, it's what happens to your self-esteem. It's what happens to your sense of being in control of your life. It's the spillover effect into the other dimensions, the emotional, the social, and the spiritual, that often are the primary benefits of physical exercise. Even beyond physical fitness, as great as that is, beyond feeling better, looking better, and nutrition also becoming increasingly important where we learn to subordinate taste to nutrition, to what is good for us. And people inwardly know so much that they do not now do. Let's look at stress for a moment. There's so much written about it and so many programs that focus on a number of different things such as meditation, biofeedback, exercise and so forth. And I think these are all excellent. But I'm convinced that the greatest stress management idea I have ever learned lies in having a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, and a sense of integrity around a value system. In the language of Hans Selye, the international expert on stress, to have this kind of meaningful work creates eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, not distress, and new stress strengthens the immune system, slows down the degenerative forces of the body, and strengthens our whole ability to cope with the realities of life. I also believe that the stress of a conscience that has been violated again and again transcends by far the stress of deadlines, pressing meetings, and having a dozen balls in the air at the same time. So I think we should deal with both sides of stress, the environmental and the profoundly personal, in cultivating a sense of meaning, a purpose, and of living by our conscience around principle-centered values. Now let's look at the mental dimension. To put forth a great effort to keep our minds vital, alert, and alive to get into reading, to turn the television way down. There's good in some of it, but too much of it is like an open sewer pouring its contents into the home with all the violence and promiscuity and betrayal and filth and incivility and behavior and language. I'm convinced that excessive television can tend to keep family members away from reading, 
from serious and fun family interaction. If you sense your family is too addicted to it, or if you're too addicted to television, try this, go cold turkey off it for a month, and watch the withdrawal screams. It'll tell you about the level of your addictions. Then when the withdrawal pains have gone, go back to it in appropriate and careful and planned ways, so that its entertainment and educational benefits come into the family without all of its negative sides. Early on with our children, we involved them in an awareness of what happens to a family. They looked at the hard data and then essentially walked out of the room and they came up with the resolve to have very little television, no more than an hour a day, and instead to focus on homework, reading, development, social interaction, and I'm convinced it has made a significant difference in our family life. Get back to reading. Give yourself the challenge of reading a book a month and then perhaps a book a week, and read broadly, widely, deeply, even outside your own comfort zone, so that you're constantly expanding and deepening your horizons. And writing is one of the most powerful mental tools to learn to write. In fact, I don't know any discipline of the mind as powerful as writing, more demanding, taking more concentration of effort. I believe that what exercise is to the body, reading is to the mind. That writing is like concentrated mental exercise because you have to gather and distill and crystallize into words for another person's mind. And it causes you to think empathically and to get very conscious about the communication processes. I commend to you also the keeping of a journal, personal history. I commend to you writing letters again for the art of letter writing it's just about gone with the convenience of the telephone and more recently the email and the internet. But learning to express your thoughts deeply and beautifully to other people is one of the great arts in life. With all the changes that are taking place in the world today where it's believed generally that most professions have a half-life of about four years, it takes constant commitment to learning, to education, and to paying the price in deep thinking and reading, just to keep abreast, just to keep up on what's happening. But to get ahead of what's happening requires even more mental concentration, effort, and energy. The spiritual dimension is a very private area. People do it in their own way, but basically it means to renew yourself and your value system, in your sense of purpose and meaning and vision. in what you deeply, deeply believe in and value, what you treasure. Work on this mission statement. Work diligently on it until it gradually crystallizes within you. When it gets settled into your core, then keep going back to it, exploring it to see if it still is relevant to your present situation. You write it as if it will be forever, but you have to keep looking at it. You try to make it up of principles that are timeless and universal and self-explanatory. Sometimes it helps to get into nature, to get into meadows, in forests, at an ocean, or even in visual images of these things, so that you're always being grounded into the earth. There's a power that comes from this that does not come from artificial made things. Sometimes you can renew it by renewing your commitments, your vows to your loved ones whatever is important and sacred to you. Sometimes you can renew your spirit by studying the great literature that inspires you, from praying and pondering, 
I'm trying to get a sense of reaching to a higher level, of making a difference, of contributing, of just getting out of your own world and your own satisfaction. Reading has entertainment value, to be sure, but to try to get inspirational reading, that kind of reading that truly edifies and uplifts your spirit, that educates your conscience and makes you very sensitive to what is right and what is wrong and what can be done, what the potential is inside another person, so that you see them with a believing heart and so that your moral sense is deep and you can detect whenever you violate it so that you can return to that which is right and proper. Read the great literature of your own faith tradition or your intellectual tradition, literature that you love, that inspires you. Read the biographies and autobiographies of the people you identify with. Model after them. Think about the great heroes of your life and the qualities you admire most about them so that you can constantly feed and educate your conscience and live by it day in and day out. To be courageous in the hard moments, little by little, the conscience is made strong and viable and powerful. It gives you tremendous social courage as well. You can learn to say no to all kinds of temptations and expedient compromising paths. Your conscience becomes strong, it feeds you, it feeds your sense of identity and worth. It gives you a sense of abundance, so that your sense of worth does not come from being compared. All of this is part of the spiritual sharpening of the saw. As I mentioned, all people do it differently. It is such a private and personal world. But it must not be neglected because it is part of our very nature. Now finally, let's look at the social-emotional dimension. Social means your relationship with others. And emotional refers to your relationship with yourself in relation to others, as well as with yourself. One of the most powerful action steps you can take after today is to begin the process of rebuilding a broken relationship you care about enormously. Reach out to touch the one that tests you the very most. Rebuild that relationship you care so much about, but which is strained and which has been wounded. Dag Hammarskjöld, the Secretary General of the United Nations of an earlier era, put it this way. It is more noble to give yourself completely to one individual than to labor diligently for the salvation of the masses. In other words, you can be very dedicated for many causes out there, worthy causes, projects, business activities, spending 10, 12, 14 hours a day, six, seven days a week, and yet not have a meaningful relationship with your own teenage son. And that will eat at you. It weakens your fiber and your will. It affects the totality of your life in some sense. If there's a sense of enmity within you, it will spread out and affect other things. Negative energy is like a metastasizing cancer. It spreads out and affects the totality of our life. Positive energy also has the same pervasive effect on everything in our life. So if you can nurture all of the key relationships of your life, it is amazing the kind of moral and social courage it gives you in other relationships, business, community, church, or whatever. You'll also find that in your efforts to rebuild some one relationship you care about a great deal, that it creates more nobility of character within that will affect all other relationships. The key, in a sense, to the 99 is the one because everyone is a one. The key to the many is the one. Why? 
because what you have to do to develop and educate and discipline your character affects everything that you do in your life. It literally has exponential leveraging capacity in all relationships. The home is usually the perfect place for the social-emotional renewal. Spending time together at the family dinner, having special family traditions, holidays, birthdays, playing together, relaxing together, worshiping together, laughing, empathically listening to each other, honoring each other, lifting each other up when there is discouragement and despair, encouraging each other, nurturing each other's emotional bank account, affirming each other, all of this is so vital and part of this social and emotional sharpening the saw. So to be committed to habit seven is to continuously jumpstart your own mind and spirit and body and your relationships on a consistent basis. And that to me is the first early commitment to make now. Don't ever neglect sharpening the saw. Don't come up with reasons for not doing it. Pay the price, my friends. The dividends are unbelievably marvelous. of solving literally any human problem. Let me share with you now a few thoughts and challenges to encourage you in the process of developing these habits. One of the most important things you can do right now begin to share these ideas with others. When you teach once, you learn twice. You learn better. It deepens your commitment to apply. It also unfreezes the labels that people have of you because they see you growing and learning. And they give you new opportunities to change and to become better. So when you teach other people and share with your family, your work associates, and others who might have an interest, that's when the real learning begins to take place. It is in the teaching and in the sharing and in the living. Sometimes it helps to focus on a single habit. You don't try to change everything at once. However, you'll find that the habits are so interwoven that any time you begin to work on one of them in a significant, deep way, Start with those things that are most important for you to work on right now. And remember, don't ever give up. Be patient. A strong character is not developed overnight. Choose to live your life based upon principles. All of the seven habits are based on universal principles which you've endured through the ages. How do you know that they are universal, timeless, and self-evident? Just try arguing against any one of them and imagine a highly effective person with no sense of responsibility, habit one, no vision, habit two, no integrity, habit three, no mutual respect, habit four, no mutual understanding, habit five, 
No creative cooperation, habit six. No renewal, habit seven. The power of these habits is in the doing, in the living, in the continuous day-by-day -day improvements. It's a constant effort. We need to make these habits and these principles a part of our very life. But it takes great patience. Consider the Chinese bamboo tree that is planted and you see nothing for four years except a little bulb and a little shoot coming from it. But literally you work diligently day in and day out to optimize the whole growing situation and you see nothing on the fifth year the Chinese bamboo tree grows up to 80 feet. All of the growth goes above the ground where before all of the growth went below the ground. To some degree, there is some relevance here. The first three habits of the private victory are in a sense below the ground. And above the ground represents habits four, five, and six and our relationships with other people. Another thing I'm sure you've learned about these habits is that you already know them. They already live in your own heart. In fact, I love the quote from T.S. Eliot, who identified this deep inner knowing and awareness. He said, We must never cease from exploring, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we began and know the place for the first time. Again, you see in a very real sense, you already know these habits in your heart. The exciting thing is to embark on a lifelong adventure of learning them, of sharing them, of literally internalizing them, and living them to the point that you can experience the magnificent fruits that will come in the totality of your lives and in all of your relationships.